Welcome back to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about the ways tech and innovation are creating a healthier, safer, and more prosperous future. And I can guarantee you that is a true statement in the long run, that technologies that find faster and better ways of producing things will make us all better off. We are, by some calculations, about 50 times wealthier today per person in the U.S. than we were in 1790. And that's not because we work harder than our ancestors did. That's because of technological innovation. So it's an incredible testament to the power of increasing productive efficiency over time. But today's guest has a cautionary tale for us from the history of industrialization. In the short term, technologies that replace jobs can create significant disruptions that leave some workers worse off for even entire generations. That fuels tech backlash, can fuel populist political discontent. Our guest, Dr. Carl Frey, is an economic historian and the Oxford Martin City Fellow at the University of Oxford. Welcome to the show, Dr. Frey. My pleasure. Now, your latest book, The Technology Trap, Capital, Labor, and Power in the Age of Automation, uh, was recently published by Princeton University Press. And that's a great title, but I'm not sure if our listeners will just know what that means. In as simple of terms as possible, what is the technology trap? Well, so what I mean by that is that when technologies are of the replacing type, that is of the sort that they threaten people's skills and incomes, an opposition might follow. And prior to the Industrial Revolution, I argue in the book, is uh, uh, one reason that growth was stagnant for so long is that um, such technologies were fiercely resisted. And and in fact, they were uh, actually resisted throughout the Industrial Revolution as well. Uh, But during the um, uh, 18th and 19th centuries, governments sided with uh, uh, the pioneers of industry rather than angry workmen. And, And that is what essentially allowed us to escape this technology trap that we were in for most of history. Mm. So how about we break that down bit by bit? Um, why don't we start first? Can you describe for us the this pre-industrial, pre-modern condition? Uh, like what was what was the economy like? That what was growth like over? You know, and I guess that's most of human history. Yeah, indeed. So, I mean, uh, so uh, for um, for a good uh, eight to ten thousand years. I think um, most of human activity was shaped by the invention of agriculture, um, and it's still very much uh, was the case in the 18th century. Um, And the landed classes, for the most part, had very little interest in the rise of industry because wealthy merchants might challenge them uh, politically. Um, And they also very little interest in creative destruction because uh, people that lose out to technological change could potentially uh, rebel against the government if that creates lots of social unrest. Um, so that was essentially sort of the political economy of technological change uh, that we were in. Um, and things changed in Britain uh, in um, the uh, 18th century um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one was that uh, competition between cities in England uh, meant that um, the uh, political clout of craft skills was eroded because their political power didn't extend uh, beyond their own city. Another factor was the uh, growing competition between nation uh, states, uh, which made it harder for governments to align technological conservatism with the state political status quo. Um, uh, most leaders realized that uh, their military muscle also depended on their economic strength. Um, And another factor was the rise of uh, relatively wealthy um, merchant manufacturers who uh, gradually also gained in political power. Um, And they were the ones who stood to benefit from mechanization. um, And as a result of that, uh, attitudes towards technological progress uh, shifted. Hmm. I I find it really interesting uh, as I was reading the book to think about the ways in which it's easy to assume today that folks will welcome growth and uh, development that like we have this mindset that's kind of baked into our culture in many levels that finding a new way of doing something is better. Um, There's almost a bias towards the new, towards the different um, a, a constant looking for an improved way of doing something. But that itself is 
is something that had to be learned. I mean, we learned that as a society and that there's actually lots of reasons to be suspicious of growth. I mean, you gave the example of uh, craftsmen's guilds uh, in the Middle Ages where, well, if you have an effective way of making shoes, you don't want, and, and it takes, it requires really skilled labor, lots of um, uh, experience. The last thing you want is a new technique that makes it easier for someone with less experience to make shoes because that's a new entrant. And so that's more competition for people who are already established in the shoe industry. So it, it's not surprising that a guild would be suspicious of that change in development. So I, I like the way in which you you talked about um, how different groups have these incentives that push them to be suspicious of technological innovation, um, but then how that changes at this key moment in the like eight, in like 18th century Britain and in some other countries. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, so speaking of 18th century Britain and the 18th century in general, why, why the 18th century? So, you know, you, you talk about in the book, there's lots of um, really genius level people in the ancient world who invented, you know, steam turbines and uh, complicated uh, uh, navigational devices. So they weren't dumb. They had just as much interest in innovation and at least coming up with ideas. Why didn't the Industrial Revolution happen earlier? Why the 18th century and why in England? Yeah, so it's an excellent question. Um, I'm not that convinced that there is this one monocausal theory. So the prevailing um, uh, theory among economic historians has long been the Allen view, which was that wages in Britain uh, were uh, relatively high. So the implementation of machines that simply didn't pay anywhere else uh, paid first in Britain in the 18th century. Uh, we know from more recent studies, though, that wages, it seems, weren't as high as was previously thought. And certain uh, inventions like William Lee's uh, stocking frame knitting machine, for example, uh, was uh, invented already in the 16th century, um, but it was fiercely uh, resisted and uh, he had essentially to leave the country. So I don't think that that is uh, the full story. And I think this was a very gradual process of changing attitudes towards technological progress that had to do with, on the one hand, as I described earlier, uh, the um, erosion of political clout among the craft guilds that had to do with the um, intensification of competition between nation states and the sort of growing uh, political clout of um, merchant manufacturers. I think those three things together of help explain why Britain was first. Um, and I think that shift sort of gradually occurred uh, in the um, 18th century um, and then accelerated uh, in the uh, 19th century. Um, and what you see if you look, for example, at patents, so people were very unlikely to claim that patents were, were labor-saving, even uh, in the late 18th century, uh, due to fear that uh, uh, there might be resistance to them. Um, and what you see is that in the 19th century, patents that claim to be on the labor-saving uh, type um, grows fourfold. Um, and I think that is in large part because industrialists and inventors gradually realized that the government uh, were on their side and they would do nothing to jeopardize Britain's competitive position in trade. You you make that you have that section uh, where you talk about um, you, you, I mean as you point here with patents that that previously when people innovated they were very careful not to argue that this would take away jobs this would replace jobs because they knew the guild that would make the guilds unhappy that would make the 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 government or the uh, the kind of elites unhappy because they're worried about political restiveness from people out of work um, but so I mean I thought that was actually a really um, a brilliant way of proving your point was to look at what people said in patents or you know, that was a, I think that was a very uh, smart move. Th this reminds me of something. Uh, so this looking at people's attitudes towards innovation and being open to the idea that even replacing labor is a good thing. That reminds me of um, uh, like a, a Deirdre McCloskey, um, her, some of her bourgeois trilogy 
books. Um, and I, I've always been struck by the difference between the economic historians explaining the rise of, well, the hockey stick of growth, you know, this explosion of growth in the last couple of centuries, hers leaning on a cultural explanation that was a shifting attitude towards trade and merchants and, you know, and that kind of, and I think we could probably include in that, um, innovation and, and labor replacing devices, um, versus, uh, theories based on just accumulation or natural resource availability. Like, um, here I'm thinking like Kenneth Pomerantz, uh, the great divergence, his explanation, he basically says the reason why China doesn't industrialize is because it has a harder time getting the coal. Uh, so it's like a natural resource explanation. Where do you like find your theory fitting into these, these different schools of thought about where, uh, global capitalism, uh, that, that takeoff comes from? So I guess um, I think all of those explanations have some merit. So I think when you want to try to explain a very complex phenomena like the Industrial Revolution, uh, there's a tendency to sort of try to focus on one monocausal theory. And I think in the end, there is no one monocausal theory. I think cultural change does play a role. Uh, I think clearly, you know, relative costs between capital and labor does play a role for the incentives to uh, adopt uh, machines in production. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not discounting those factors, but I do think that the sort of structure of political power uh, in the economy uh, is also absolutely uh, critical. Um, and I think that, you know, if you go back sort of during pre-industrial times, you saw that resistance, outright resistance to uh, replacing technologies in particular was the uh, norm rather than the exception and uh, not just in Britain. Um, and you see that that sort of gradually vanishes, uh, uh, especially over the course of the 20th century, uh, as people sort of begin to see their wages rise and begin to see that uh, them, they themselves also uh, became beneficiaries of technological progress. Mm. Um, and one of those points you make about the kind of political structure changing at the time, that's going to be a little, you know, I can, I can feel our libertarian audience, it's going to be a little uncomfortable to think about the importance of the rise of the nation state, um, embracing technology because, or, or you know, in being willing to see even labor replacing technological innovation because it increased their capacity to wage war on a massive scale with other with other nation states. So there's a really important role being played by the state um, for an end that libertarians would find nefarious, waging war. But it promotes something libertarians like, which is economic growth and uh, a little more of a, in a sense, a late, uh, a pro-innovation, um, pro-market kind of approach. So, I mean, it, there, there's bits here. I mean, I suppose the point there is not, uh, is the, the real points about the value of a pro-innovation government, whatever its motivations, rather than, you know, the, yeah, I mean, for whatever reason, the state started to embrace that kind of uh, innovative approach uh, to techno to technology. Um, something else you mentioned there, though, um, uh, the importance of tensions between like intrastate tensions. So, um, how the the fallout in battles between the royalty and parliaments, between the executive and legislature, um, how that played a role in this moment. Could you flesh that out a little bit for me? Sure, certainly. So I think to to, to just go back, yes, I think one one point to emphasize is that when you read through what people actually said at the time, mechanization was always about fostering Britain's competitive advantage in trade. So that was sort of the prime driver um, of mechanization. Uh, few people actually thought that mechanization could improve the human lot. So both Ricardo and Malthus uh, still believed in the iron law wages, which persisted, and, and, and the two generation of political economists after them, which essentially meant that any growth would just translate into larger populations uh, with no improvement of standards of living. Uh, and, uh, you know, that is still reflected in the uh, poor, poor law uh, um, reforms in 1834, uh, when essentially uh, those poor laws were replaced. And so there was, I, I think it's hard to make an argument that mechanization was uh, driven by 
you know, uh, uh, governments striving to improve uh, the human lot. It was more of a uh, of a way of improving Britain's uh, uh, competitive position in trade. Um, in uh, particular, so in, entirely one thing was uh, the falling costs or the declining cost of transportation within Britain, which also followed from the Turnpike Trust, which meant essentially that the political uh, clout of guilds gradually uh, diminished uh, because um, uh, their political clout didn't extend beyond their own city or their market. And industrial cities that sprung up, such as Manchester and uh, Birmingham, uh, weren't even uh, um, uh, covered by any craft guild uh, regulations. So that sort of further exacerbated um, the uh, uh, decline uh, of their political power. Um, Inside British Parliament, the number of MPs that uh, supported uh, uh, mechanization uh, gradually increased, in part because merchant manufacturers became uh, more wealthy, and as they become more wealthy, also more politically influential. And also in part because of uh, colonial trade, uh, many of the landed classes had fairly diversified wealth. So to some extent, they also benefit, benefited from um, trade, as did merchant uh, manufacturers. Um, so um, that's, um, I think that sort of roughly summarizes the story mm. of what, what happened within Britain. Uh, something that I realize that I've been, t we've been talking about without, um, without kind of digging into a little bit more is the distinction between augmenting and replacing technology. So sometimes you also for augmenting use enabling. So what is that distinction between a technology that is enabling and one that's replacing? Yeah, so a replacing technology is a technology that makes your skills or my skills redundant by you know replacing us in a certain task. So the most clear-cut example of that is, you know, Back in the 1950s and 60s, we used to have a lot of elevator operators with, you know, a good sense of timing, and they could, you know, stop uh, uh, the elevator when it was parallel to the floor. Uh, that job outright disappeared when a new technology uh, arrived, being the automatic uh, elevator. Uh, so those, uh, that particular technology made the skills of uh, elevators redundant, as did elect uh, electric um uh, uh, street lights with lamp lighters who formerly uh, um, used to uh, lit uh, gas, gas, lamps, uh, gas lamps on our streets. Um, and there's a wide range of, such, uh, 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 range of examples of such technologies. Um, an example for an augmenting technology would be uh, the statistical software that I use when I, when I uh, uh, do economic analysis. Uh, which helps me essentially you know, write more papers and do my work more productively and makes my skills as an economist, uh, if anything, more valuable. Mm. So, or, or, you know, stuff that's being developed now, the difference between replacing a, a, I don't know, a warehouse worker with a, a robot that shuttles things around the warehouse, that's replacing. Enabling might be like a, a, an exoskeleton suit for an industrial worker so that they their arms don't wear out as quickly when wielding heavy machinery. So that's the... And I, I suppose the next question I have then is, is it possible to know what... So when, it, when someone proposes a technological innovation, is it possible to know beforehand or mid-adoption which a tech is going to be on the net, like whether a new, like when, when they came up with the computer software that enabled the, uh, you know, the, the, the complex statistical calculations that you're describing for your own job, it, is it only in hindsight that you can know whether or not that on the net enabled more workers versus replaced more workers? Yeah, I think it's only in high hindsight that you can, can know that. I think that what you can say is, you can look at 
what the technology does and you can look at existing jobs so for example when you know uh, trucks become fully autonomous i think it is likely that truck drivers will be replaced as a result of that uh, i had some uh, discussions recently with somebody claiming that well school bus drivers for example they do other things like they look after uh, the children as well in the bus they don't <laughs> just drive uh, which is certainly true but then I think you you get into the question. Well, it's actually school bus driver if he or she doesn't even drive the bus and doesn't really even need a driver's mm-hmm. license. It sounds to me as a different type of job, um, and uh, requiring presumably a different different person. So I think you know yep. uh, you rather have somebody who's very good at at, at with children than uh, rather than whose main skill is driving. So um, a lot of patience. Uh, <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> Uh, so I think it's it's hard to say uh, um, uh, predict exactly what the effects of new technologies uh, are going to be, but I think uh, it is possible at least to say something meaningful about it. So uh, this then gets us to so we have people, and we so I, I think we you stipulate in the book you're very careful to point out that on a society wide level and over the long run. These d- innovations, even the ones that replace jobs, are good in the long run. Um, but, of course, as you also note, uh, in the long run, we're all dead. So in the short term, though, there are people who, you know, our bus driver here, if they if they, they spent all this time and effort um, and expense training to, to get their CDL, so they're certified to drive a bus – but now that's not going to help them with the new position that's replacing them, the you know, child minder. Um, they're in the short term, and the short term can be their entire lives, an entire generation. Um, they're worse off. Uh, and so that gets us to something you describe in the book as – I think this plays into the angles pause. So maybe you can flesh that out a little more for our listeners. Yeah. So I think – I mean most economists acknowledge that – Technological change is what we call welfare improving. Uh, it makes us better off on average. Uh, but most economists will also acknowledge that technology isn't, uh, 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 at least in the short run, uh, Pareto improving, right? It doesn't make everybody uh, better off, at least in the short run. I think what is commonly not acknowledged is that we are not very specific about what's the sh- what the short run is, right? Is it, whether it's uh, 20 days or 20 years, uh, it's kind of a big difference. Um, and there have been episodes of uh, technological change where things didn't work out very well for average people uh, for a, a very long time. And one such episode is what uh, the economic historian Bob Allen has called Engels' pause. And that was the first seven decades of the Industrial Revolution, where the factory system uh, replaced the uh, artisan shop. A lot of middle-income craftsmen uh, saw their incomes vanish, and a lot of the new jobs that were being created were actually uh, for children uh, working in the factories. So while some craftsmen certainly made a successful uh, transition to factory work, uh, many found themselves now competing with uh, low-cost uh, child labor, uh, who uh, uh, essentially often uh, received wages um, a sixth of what uh, a craftsman uh, could earn, uh, and many would uh, that didn't work for any wages at all. Hmm. And uh, I mean, I assume this is called the Engels pause after the you know Marxist theorist. Um... After Engels yes, so. exactly. Yeah. Yes, I should have should have mentioned, but yeah. So it's essentially when uh, Friedrich Engels published the condition of the uh, working classes in England in 1844. If you look back at the seven decades before that, that was roughly Engels' pause, so the period he observed and wrote about. Which then is a reminder that you know when there's this lag, when there's a a, a community of people, a large community of people who. Um, aren't going to see the gains, uh, you know, the, 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 the productive efficiency is, is going to disproportionately, disproportionately help, I don't know, people who uh, own the factories, capital holders or uh, consumers broadly, um, but it's going to hurt people whose jobs have been displaced. You know, they go from being skilled craftsmen to, you know, child laborers in a factory. Um, that, can, that can fuel 
uh, social and political uh, demands for redress. So, I mean, obviously, in this case, the rise of Marxism is 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 inextricably tied to hey, look, we're, workers aren't getting a, a what we feel is a fair share of the you know the value of their labor. Um, are we in um, – and we can talk a bit about the difference between the British experience, these seven decades in the 19th century versus the American experience in the first half of the 20th century. Um, but uh, – so so maybe – actually, maybe we should just talk about that. So we have an Engels pause in Britain in the, in the first part of the 19th century. Yet when the US goes through the, its own kind of rapid industrialization – in the at the turn of the 20th century and on, why isn't there an Engels pause in the U.S. at least not to the same extent? Yes, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. So, uh, one reason um, I argue in the book is that mass production churned out a lot of well-paying jobs in mass production industries. So, what you see during the early part of the 20th century is that first of all, many of uh, the industries. Um, that uh, emerged during that time, such as automotive and electrical machinery, they employed very few children because it required, uh, required workers with uh, uh, more strength, uh, physical strength and skill. Uh, and obviously, uh, uh, the introduction of child labor laws uh, made it uh, more costly um, to employ children um, as well. Um, so uh, the main sort of uh, explanation goes to a uh, wave of enabling technologies, creating a lot of jobs that draw people into mass, mass production industries uh, from the countryside. And as people saw new and better paid job opportunities emerge for them, uh, many willingly left uh, the farm for the factories. Mm. So there were, it was kind of, it struck me as there was like this, uh, there was a disproportionate weight towards the replacing technologies in Britain in the first half of the 19th century. But there was kind of a combo of the two in the U.S. where there are replacing technologies uh, on farms. I mean, so um, I guess there's mechanization that allows farms to be run with fewer farm hands. Uh, so the demand for labor on farms goes down, and uh, but folks are also there's new enabling technologies on you know factory on assembly lines in I don't know, the Ford Auto factory and the like. So you have that that kind of a balancing effect um, going on in the United States, and it wasn't as balanced in a sense in the 19th century. Is, is there any reason for that? Is just just is it just happenstance that um, there was fewer enabling techs to offset uh, uh, replacing technologies in the 19th century? Great Britain. Yeah, so I think first of all, I think there's always been both push and pull. So I, th I think we, we we there's a there's a tendency to also oversimplify and say that look, this was a period of enabling technological change and this was a period of replacing technological change. But on balance, I think every episode has been had a bit uh, of both. Um, I think what the distinction I'm trying to make in the book is that most people were most people were pushed out of uh, uh, the artisan shop uh, as the sort of early factories replaced it. Most people during the early 20th century were drawn into mass production industries uh, uh, because of better opportunities being offered, uh, offered there. And since the 1980s, a lot of people have been essentially pushed out of uh, manufacturing as uh, the United States and other countries has deindustrialized. So I think that is sort of broadly speaking, uh, the uh, distinction. Um, um, I was going to ask, though, so we have an Engels pause in the 19th century, um, less of one in the early 20th century in the US. But are we in an Engels pause today? Are we in a new Engels pause in the US, I suppose, specifically or in the uh, in the developed nations more generally? Yeah, so I think we are. I mean, if we look across countries, so I think we see certain common features. So we see a hollowing out of middle-income jobs. That is something that is prevalent across uh, the United States and also uh, the industrial West more generally. We have seen a decoupling between productivity growth and uh, wage growth. That is something that we see more broadly uh, across the industrial West. Um, and also we've seen, uh, well, that's just as, uh, uh, a different way of saying in the former, that the labor share of income uh, has fallen. But it's done so uh, to varying degree. Um, and I think 
that is uh, no surprise. I mean, uh, every technology or uh, uh, interacts with different uh, set of institutions in different countries. So we couldn't expect the impact to be exactly the same. Uh, but it still sort of points towards global forces at work, those being uh, globalization and, and technological change. Um, and uh, if we look since the 1980s, and the United States is uh, most extreme in this regard, but what we see is that not just has inequality risen, but the wages of workers with no more uh, than a high school degree has actually fall, <coughs> fallen for over three decades now. Uh, so on balance, those groups in the labor market have been uh, net losers to automation. Now, you might definitely say that, you know, some of that has been made up by uh, them also being consumers and they have access to more goods and services uh, than they did in the past. And, you know, a lot of new things like YouTube and uh, Wikipedia, it's free. So uh, that's all wonderful. Uh, but I still, still think that there are, you know, reasons to be concerned uh, about this. Um, and in particularly because the impact of the technology has been so uh, uneven uh, uh, within countries, right? So, I mean, the caricature is, would be the Bay Area and Detroit, right? Most tech industries, most, most tech jobs have clustered in places like the Bay Area. Uh, on the other hand, you see places like Detroit where a lot of manufacturing jobs have disappeared. And those jobs in turn used to support the incomes of other people living there, right? As people go out and spend their money in the local service economy. And as those jobs have disappeared uh, in manufacturing cities, the local service economy has taken a hit uh, in places where we see uh, that new tech jobs have emerged that it created a lot of new spending power uh, and has uh, led to the creation of a lot of new jo jobs in uh, local uh, in the local service um, sector uh, so that has sort of driven this uh, uh, imbalance as well and this uh, uh, polarization that we see across geographies mm. so along with that um, I mean it's it's both a regional uh, disparity in terms of of income potential you know so Bay Area versus Detroit is, I think, a great way uh, that, that you put it. Um, it's, you know, also then, you know, folks with college education versus folks with without. Um, there's, you know, these – and I, I, the point you make about the pulling away so it is well put, I think, um, or hollowing out the middle class. That what you have – it's not as if the middle class has all gotten poorer. You have more upper – quartile people. You have more upper income folks than we had a generation ago, but you also have more lower income folks that the, the middle class is kind of pulling towards opposite sides of the income distribution uh, compared to, you know, compared to previous previous generations. This though seems to, this, this brings to mind uh, Thomas Piketty's book, uh, his argument um, that you seem to disagree with at least some level um, where he he uh, says that essentially only political or catastrophic shocks of some kind can decrease the natural tendency of capital towards inequality that, um, you know, short of a, a, a world war or a, a series of natural disasters or some major political intervention, uh, this trend towards wealthy, uh, you know, wealthy, uh, a wealthy upper income set of folks and uh, a lot of lower income folks, so mass, you know, income and wealth inequality, that's inevitable. Uh, to what extent do you disagree with that kind of perspective? And what do you think is the main driver um, in this case as an alternative to kind of the Piketty perspective? Well, I think, I mean, Piketty essentially focuses on wealth and uh, most people don't have a lot of wealth, right? Uh, the wealth of uh, working people is in their skills. Uh, so their, their capital is their human capital. Um, and if you look at, if, I mean, if you want to uh, explain, for example, the trajectories of, uh, you know, the incomes of the top 1%, uh, the forces described by Piketty might be uh, the right to uh, look at. Uh, I'm not sure, but if you want to explain why the wages of people with no more than a, a, a high school degree has fallen for three decades, um, I don't think that that you know, provides mm. a helpful framework for thinking about that. Mm. And I would 
think that he doesn't probably not think so either. Um, so there are a lot of other things uh, that are going on. Um, and uh, clearly, if you want to understand the economic tra tra uh, uh, trajectories among people, uh, uh, among the 99% uh, rather than the 1%, mm -hmm. I think that globalization, technological change uh, has, has more explanatory power to offer. Mm. Um on a related note, um, now at one point in the book, you mentioned that perhaps 80% of the income difference between uh, uh, rich and poor countries across the globe today can be explained by different rates of technolo uh, technological adoption. Um, if, if it's that large of a margin, that, that seems to run contrary to kind of the conventional popular belief among non-economists. Um, that the reason why rich countries are rich is primarily because they got rich by exploiting poor countries via colonialism or slavery and the like. How do you like the, the tension between the public perception of how rich countries got rich um, and the statistics that you estimate there about the how much of that gap is because of increases in productive efficiency? How, how do you resolve that tension? Yeah, so I mean, there's probably an argument to be made that uh, poor countries are poor in part to uh, colonialization, the things that you described. Uh, I think that uh, if you want to subscribe, you know, if you want to explain the extraordinary upsurge in, 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 in economic growth that's taken place over the past two centuries, um, uh, technology is the place to look. Um, I think, though, that you, um, as you mentioned, uh, the disparities are quite staggering, and that does beg the question, though, why the disparities in technology adoption uh, have been so uh, uh, significant. Um, and that may be explained by other factors like geography and institutions and education and all sorts of things. Uh, so uh, there are obviously other factors underlying that, uh, but the view that... Uh, uh, that you know the wealth uh, of the West has just uh, 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 accumulated from from uh, uh, from uh, um, extracting wealth from the poor uh, is is clearly not uh, true. Um, now let's move to uh, kind of the present day again. Um, you wrote a paper that you described in the book back in 2013. Uh, you used this big database uh, covering. Uh, occupations, it was like 97% of US workers. So it's this, um, and you estimated in that paper that some 47%, so nearly half of US jobs are at high risk of automation in the near future. Uh, what kinds of, so we've moved, we've been talking about mechanization during the industrial revolution. And now we're talking about kind of automation today. And so it's a a, a different set of technologies, but it's it's a similar process and it's again labor enabling versus labor replacing but what kinds of jobs and skill sets today do you think are most most frequently showed up or are most likely to be replaced by automation technology yeah so we find that to be a very a tricky question to answer because there's been so many inroads of uh, machine learning on anything from you know uh, driverless cars to translation to medical diagnostics to document reviews so a very sort of broad set of tasks are becoming automatable so we sort of turned the questions around and um, uh, um, asked uh, despite all of these advances in machine learning, in which sort of domains do human workers still hold a comparative advantage? Um, and we, and I should say I'm an economist and economic historian by background, uh, and, and I did this research with uh, colleagues in engineering sciences who are developing exactly these technologies that we are discussing. And, and what um, they all agreed on is that complex social interactions are very hard to automate. So if you think about, uh, for example, uh, the Loebner Prize, which is a Turing test competition, uh, some people got very excited a few years ago when uh, there was actually one chatbot to managed to convince 30% of human judges of uh, it being a person, but it did so by pretending to be a 13-year-old Russian boy speaking English as uh, his uh, second language without, with no understanding of uh, English culture 
whatsoever. Um, and I mean, if you think about the variety it, yeah. of, <laughs> indeed. So if you, if you think about the variety of much, much more complex social interactions that we do in our daily jobs, you know, where we try to persuade people that we are right and we manage teams and we assist and take care of people and all sorts of things, uh, that is very far off from being automated away. So anything that centers on sort of more complex in-person interactions uh, is very hard to automate. Um, the second bit has to do with uh, creativity. Um, and I think there's a tendency, so there's a big debate in the machine learning community whether you know, algorithms can be uh, creative. But I think there, most of that disagreement has to do with the definition of uh, uh, creativity. Uh, and I think there's a tendency to conflate originality and creativity. So uh, you know, I, I can you know, draw up something novel, uh, but it's probably not going to, to, to be very appealing to most people uh, because uh, I'm simply not a very talented artist, but it's probably original and uh, could probably be original and novel to some extent. But the, uh, I'm, I'm uh, very unlikely to get anybody to pay for it. Um, and um, what, what you can certainly do is that you can, I mean, there, there, there is software that, you know, writes music and you can certainly, you know, uh, um, just uh, create a database with, with all the, you know, symphonies that have ever been written and you can label them and say that these are the most symphonies. They are uh, very, all very uh, nice. So that those are good and the other ones, you know, we don't like them so much and the algorithm would come up with some recombination of those symphonies and it would probably sound uh, very quite similar to Mozart. Uh, but you wouldn't arrive at Stravinsky or Schoenberg or Arvo Pat. Um, and um, uh, I think one of the reasons for that is that, you know, artists don't just draw upon other uh, pieces of music. We draw upon, you know, or they draw upon other experiences of life and might be even a dream. So in many cases, we draw upon things that are probably always going to be outside the sort of t training data set. Um, so I think creativity is another domain that uh, is uh, uh, still going to be firmly in uh, uh, in, in human hands. Um, and the third bottleneck we identify has to do with the perception and manipulation of regular objects. So, I mean, you know, humans have very dexterous hands and we are able to identify and distinguish between you know, very, a very great variety of objects and pick them up uh, and, you know, put them in different places. And if you think about your home, for example, I mean, you have hundreds of objects lying around there and certain things are very easy to us to, you know, we see if there's a bit, bit of rubbish li lying on the floor uh, and uh, uh, that's, you know, intuitive to us, but to, you know, uh, to, to, to sort of explain what is rubbish and what is a really important document and what's a pot that's dirty and a pot that uh, and needs to be clean or a pot that holds a plant and things like that are not as straightforward. So there's a lot of sort of perception um, issues that also translate into manipulation uh, issues. So I think that the automated cleaner is unfortunately one of the last things that we're going to have. So that was essentially how we approach this by looking at how intensive uh, jobs are in uh, tasks that correspond to these engineering bottlenecks to automation. Mm. Um, it, it, it was interesting when I was out at uh, TechCrunch Disrupt last year interviewing uh, startup founders. Like it, it's clear that the trying to decide which and again, this is a matter of prediction, which is always hard to do, right? It's always easier in hindsight, which is why it's great to be a historian because you usually worry about the past. Um, it, but, but there's great value in predicting what is going to be automated, what careers, what professions. Um, and you, I'm sure there's you, you can quibble about which exact professions are most at, at the most vulnerable. Like there was one startup that says they're going to uh, automate much of what uh, lawyers do in doc review. So, you know, fresh out of law school, you go and go through boxes and boxes of documents trying to to you know find stuff of interest to the to the legal team. And they basically said, look, AI can do that quicker, cheaper, and actually find be stuff better than a human individual. So we're going to automate that. So, but th the point's not that like uh, 
we, we so we don't but we don't know which professions that's going to be true of and there are professions that are more resistant to the shocks than others ones that are as you mentioned more creative that require more human social interaction etc uh um at the same time though i i think in general folks who are studying this question say look a lot of jobs are going to be automated over the next you know the the, the near time horizon over the next couple of decades um, and that has knock-on effects, not just – I mean the economic effect is people who train for one career suddenly finding out that that career has been automated. Um, so the economic effect is, well, they're not making as much money. They're under unemployed or underemployed, um, a mismatch between what they trained for and what they're actually doing. But that then has knock-on political uh, effects as well. There's – you know, we should expect a kind of uh, – backlash against automation tech because that's what's happened in the past. Um, you talk about Luddites in the book, you know, the kind of Luddite resistance um, to technological innovation and why that didn't work. I mean, the formal Luddite movement really, you know, it, it, it was a, you know, it, uh, uh, it was, you know, King Canute trying to hold back the sea with a command to some extent. Um, do you think that a neo-Luddite, like the, the potential for resisting automation today uh, has a better chance of succeeding for good or for ill? Uh, it's a very good question, uh, especially because it's a very hard one to answer. Um, <laughs> exactly. I don't know would be the honest answer, but I, yeah. um, let, let, let me just uh, go back a bit. So what we said in the uh, 2013 paper where we estimated that 47% of jobs are exposed to automation is that they are potentially automatable from a technological capabilities point of view. And if we look to history, uh, what we see is that the potential you know, to automate something is not the only thing that matters for actual adoption of the technology. And back in this paper in 2013, we had a section you know, discussing a variety of factors that are likely to shape the pace of automation rather than you know, just the scope. Uh, and uh, nobody seems to have read that particular section. So this paper turned out to be interpreted as something along the lines that 47% of jobs are going to disappear within a decade or two. Um, and this book is sort of, what this book is saying is uh, that uh, technological determinism uh, is probably bound uh, to be wrong because there's a lot of factors that play into this economic and social um, alike. So if you take, for example, the adoption of the tractor, uh, you know, a lot of people actually worried that the adoption of uh, tractors uh, was uh, very slow uh, and that that was hurting American productivity. Um, and one reason that uh, adoption of tractors was slow was that many people believe that you know the tractor is a too good of a machine to be put in the hands of a poor operator. Um, and as a result of that, um, tractors were only adopted after courses had been developed for tractor operators to you know, bridge the skills gap, if you like. Um, another reason is that uh, there was an abundance of sheep labor in the countryside for a long time, so it didn't make economic sense to invest in tractor technology. Uh, farms had to consolidate for the technology to become uh, economically uh, viable. Um, and uh, these were all uh, factors that sort of played into uh, the adoption of the tractor. And it's also the reason why it took a long time for the technology to spread. Uh, so what I'm saying in the book is not that all of these jobs are going to disappear uh, anytime soon, um, but there's a lot of factors that drive uh, um, decisions to automate. And that historically, when technology has been of the replacing sort, uh, resistance has been more likely. Um, and I think if we go back 10 years, fewer people would have predicted you know, the trade war that we're having now. Uh, but we knew already, or economists knew back in the 1990s, that trade was is welfare improving, but it's not parity improving. Uh, and the same is true of technology. And here we are. Uh, so I think we need to be very careful that we you know, don't make the mistake with the same mistake with technology as we have uh, made with trade. Um, and if history is any guidance, you know, uh, uh, a resistance to technological change has been the norm uh, uh, rather than the uh, exception. Uh, that is not 
to suggest that a future with a lot of resistance to technological change uh, is necessarily going to happen. Uh, but it does suggest that there is a possibility that we should take seriously, because if there is a backlash against technology itself, uh, we would all be poorer off uh, as a result of that. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, the reason why the West is so much uh, richer today uh, than it was 200 years ago has not to do with exploitation, but the fact that we've invented a lot of good things and have adopted it for the most part, at least, uh, relatively enthousi enthusiastically. Um, and if that sentiment shifts, there's nothing to ensure that that is going to continue. Mm. Um, so we are in this moment of, well, we, we see a revival of uh, suspicion of trade, and it's kind of a, a broad uh, bipartisan uh, here in the U.S. suspicion. Um on both right and left. We're also in this moment of suspicion towards big tech. Um, uh, there's, you know, been calls for everything from antitrust action to tighter regulations of, uh, for, of tech companies like Amazon, Google, and the like. Is that a, a, an outgrowth of technological backlash? I mean, I don't generally think of Amazon as a labor replacing set of technologies, but maybe I'm thinking about that wrong. Like, wh where does that this growing suspicion of of big tech fit into this story about um, uh, resistance to uh, technological innovation? Yes, I think the uh, big tech tech lash is uh, backlash is has to do with other things rather than automation. So I think it has to do with national security concerns. It has to do with the sense that these firms are not paying their fair share in terms of taxes. I think the Cambridge uh, Analytica episode uh, it didn't help. I think that Facebook's way of handling it probably didn't help either. So I'm not sure how related that is to, to uh, mm. the issue of automation. Uh, I do think, though, that there are other signs of, uh, of uh, automation becoming a, a, a more of a political concern. Andrew Yang's candidacy for the bid for the White House is one such uh, example. The uh, fact that you know taxing robots to slow down the pace of automation are features in the public debate on both sides of the Atlantic uh, is a sign of that. Uh, a Pew Research survey that came out uh, in 2017 suggests that most Americans now actually favor policies to restrict the adoption of automation technologies uh, beyond hazardous jobs. Uh, so uh, I think there are signs that you know there is demand for such policies and uh, that there might be people willing to supply them. Uh, and that's the reason for concern. It does seem telling that like there is a lot of this interest in say the UBI um, uh, universal basic income comes from, you know, tech sector folks uh, like Andrew Yang and, and others um, who are worried that the, the labor replacing technologies that are developing will create this, you know, will create, political and cultural backlash. Um, and I, I'm, I'm somewhat agnostic on the question of like the UBI. I could see it either, uh, you know, saving the displacement, you know, and, and thus mitigating uh, Luddite opposition, the tech lash, or it could, I don't know, create a permanent underemployed underclass of the automation displaced to make things worse. I don't know. I mean, that's, again, a hindsight kind of um, outcome. But w in the book, when it comes to solutions, uh, you seem kind of bearish on UBI job retraining, bullish on things like uh, like solutions like the uh, EI the earned income tax credit, limiting occupational licensing, and some other things. What if you had to pick uh, one kind of suite of policy responses that you think would be most effective in in you know responding to kind of the tech backlash? What would it be? So I think of the uh, menu of, of, of uh, proposals I have in the book, I think I put put early childhood ed education and uh, infrastructure investment to connect uh, connect places at the top. So uh, as an example of the latter, uh, I grew up in in southern Sweden. Uh, in Lund, small university city, uh, but close to Malmö, which had a big shipyard up until uh, the 1980s. 
uh, when that went bankrupt. And as a result of that, uh, the Malmö uh, economy experienced a period of, uh, uh, of stagnation, uh, which um, first reversed actually with the construction of the bridge to Copenhagen. So all of a sudden, uh, people in Malmö could tap into booming labor markets in Copenhagen. They could still stay put in Malmö, where housing uh, remained cheap, um, has been incre- has been growing since, I can say, but uh, still relatively cheap. And uh, they often, because they stay put in Malmö, would spend their money locally uh, where they lived, which gave a boost to the local, local service economy. And the region is now one of the uh, most dynamic labor markets in Europe. Um, so I think that you know, con- connecting places in this way um, can uh, uh, make a, a big difference. Um, I think with regard to early childhood education, um, we don't know exactly what the skills of the future will be, uh, but we do know that children that have early deficits in uh, or deficiencies in math and uh, reading skills, um, they tend to struggle to catch up in education also later in life. They are much less likely to go to college. They are much uh, less likely to vote in elections and so on and so forth. Um, So I think that investing early on uh, in children, particularly from uh, in deprived areas, um, care is is to me a no-brainer. So that's the second thing I would Mm. pick. We had... uh, uh an author on the show a little while ago, a guy named John Ibbotson, who's a Canadian journalist who wrote a book about uh, the coming uh, global depopulation crisis that um, contrary to the UN's estimates that global population will, uh, uh, he believes, peak in at in 2050 and start to decline and that it's going to seem strange in the future that people were worried about too many people uh, most countries in the world by that point will have sub replacement pop, you know, uh, birth rates. And, um, so uh, part of me, as I was reading the book, I was thinking about like, that's not to say we won't have an angles, uh, an angles pause in the, sh- in the medium term for the next couple of decades. But it, it, if that were true, if there's a coming global depopulation crisis, there is, we're, we would have naturally a mismatch then. We're going to have an undersupply of labor, of workers, because we're, there are going to be fewer people every generation, every year. Um, would you expect that to mitigate some of this? I mean, we'll actually be desperate for labor replacing devices because we won't have enough workers. Yeah, I mean, that may well be the case. Um, so I don't, um, I don't have a very uh, strong view on that. Uh, my general uh, perception is that you know uh, these technologies are good for will be good for productivity and they will make our jobs more interesting, allow us to focus on things that we like, such as you know interacting with people and trying to be creative and that sort of thing. And they're going to offer a lot of good uh, services uh, for us and you know recommendations on Amazon and all sorts of things that we can't even imagine today uh, that will be uh, very beneficial to us uh, in the long run. Uh, I'm more worried about the short-run dynamics of this and that the short-run could potentially be a long time. So, I mean, looking forward in the next 50, 100 years, uh, it may well be uh, the case that, you know, uh, uh, the problem is uh, not uh, finding enough workers. And some people even argue that that is the case today, right? Unemployment figure has been trending down. Uh, uh, for uh, a while now. What we see, though, is that certain groups in the labor market uh, are uh, not sort of reaping the benefits um, of that. So particularly prime-age men who would have taken on jobs in the factories uh, during the post-war boom years um, are the ones that uh, are, to a large extent, outside the workforce. Um, And I'm more worried about going forward that, you know, many of these technologies seem to me to be quite skill intensive. So I think that the return to skill is likely to intensify and unlikely to diminish. Uh, And I think that many of these technologies, it seems to me, are more likely to replace 
Um, low-skilled workers, I think you know, there's been a variety of studies on how susceptible jobs are to automation, and they come up with various estimates, but I think one thing they agree on is that low-skilled uh, jobs are more exposed to automation overall. Uh, so I worry more about certain groups in the labor market uh, struggling to adjust uh, rather than there being enough jobs. Yeah. Well, and even if it this resolves itself in... Or, or if the pressure is alleviated in 30, 50, 100 years, um, in the long run, as, as you put in the book, we're, we're all dead. So we have to worry about the short and medium term, not just the long run. Um, and in fact, this is one of my favorite lines from the book. You write, artisan craftsmen whose feelings were stronger than their judgment rebelled against the very machinery that came to deliver unprecedented wealth for the commoner, or so the story goes. This story is an accurate description of the long run. But in the long run, we're all dead. And that made me think about the kind of, in a sense, there's a, an, an empathetic or empathic argument for and against um, this kind of technological displacement. Uh, people can see, I mean, this is a, that which is seen, that which is not seen, a Frederick Bastiat kind of observation. But we can see the impacts of labor replacing technology on displaced workers right now. But it's harder for us to see or imagine it, future generations who will benefit from that technology, from the product, gains in productive efficiency and growing wealth. Do you think – and here's my last question. Do, do we have – an ethical obligation to future generations to per permit technological innovation, even if doing so doesn't benefit ourselves or even negatively impacts our own incomes in the short term? Well, I think that's, I mean, your question comes down to how, to how you value future lives, right? So, mm. I mean, you value the lives of people who haven't been born yet. Uh, I personally think that we should, and I think that there is to some, some such an obligation but i mean it's uh, it's a value statement so sure. I, I'm, I'm sure there will be a bit of a disagreement about that we need an economic philosopher to join our economic historian here yeah well well, Dr. Frey, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'll say for a nearly 400-page book on economic history, it's very readable, sprinkled with lots of fascinating little stories and even humorous facts. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. Before we go, I'd like to note that this was our 50th episode of Building Tomorrow. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for sticking with us. Uh, maybe we'll make it to 100 before my job is fully automated. I don't know. But until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.